You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. I think it was Winnie the Pooh who said, when you are a bear of very little brain and you think of things, you find sometimes that a thing which seemed very thingish inside you is quite different when it gets out into the open and has other people looking at it. I think Richard Sherman would probably agree. <laughs> and I, I don't just say that as a guy who grew up in San Francisco, um, nor do I think he's a, a bear of very little brain. But, you know, if you, if you were trying to get any other news this week other than a Richard Sherman news, I'm sorry. Uh, maybe that's what next week will be for. If you don't know who he is, he's the guy who made a spectacular game-winning play at the end of the Seahawks game. He's a cornerback for the Seahawks, a huge interception. But nobody remembers the play. What they remember is the interview after the play because Richard Sherman is standing there with Aaron Andrews, a Fox Sports reporter, and she's holding. she doesn't even have to ask him a question, and he just explodes uh, all over her with this trash talk about uh, another player on the other t- team. And um, you're thinking, wow, where did that come from? Well, I feel kind of bad for him because the whole week it was like everybody looking at Richard Sherman's thingish thing. It was out there and we were all looking at it. And there was kind of withering criticism as the blogosphere lit up uh, with everybody's reaction to it. Most, not everybody, most people's reaction to it. Um, And I don't really know how Richard Sherman felt about that, um, but I know how I feel uh, about that. And it happens to me all the time. Give you an example. You think I'd be chastened by the media as I'm reading these stories about Richard Sherman. It was uh, Thursday. My wife, early in the morning, says something very nice to me. She asked me this question, and I reacted out of the thingish thing inside of me. Uh, I don't know what it was. I guess I would say that maybe uh, um, if I were an athlete, I was kind of in the zone. I was really focused on work, okay? There was a lot of stress, other things in my head, filled with adrenaline. Sherman used that line. And, um, and, and, and all of a sudden, my innocent, sweet, loving wife comes over and just asks me, a nice question, and I just, boom, I just exploded, this outburst of, little outburst of anger that uh, occurs, and there, she's standing there all of a sudden like Aaron Andrews with a, holding the microphone going, where did that thing come from? <laughs> and you know, it's awkward, it's the kind of thing you have to apologize for, but you don't really want to, um, but you have to do, <laughs> we'll talk later, what you have to do <laughs> is figure out how you can live with that thing. I knew that the story was big when um, my wife took a phone call from a friend of ours back in Boston, two women. I don't know that either of them watched that football game. I know my wife didn't. And this is all they wanted to talk about, the Richard Sherman interview. And I'm thinking, why, why, who cares? What's this all about? And then I realized, you know what? I think it's that we all know we have something thingish inside of us. We all know. And we kind of take secret delight when somebody else's thingish thing comes out and we're all looking at it because we fear what would happen if my thingish thing should ever be on public display. So we're watching, wondering, what do you do with it? What would Richard Sherman, what would a Stanford grad do with it? You know, and I'm afraid education doesn't really help you at that point. You need something more. And I think what you need is Jesus. And Jesus offers us something that the world doesn't offer in this respect. The question this morning is, what can we do with the thingish stuff inside of us? We can't afford to let it out. And if you learn anything from this week, it's that the world uh, doesn't make it easy when you share your brokenness, when they see it. Like the criticism is off the charts. We know we can't afford to do that. People wouldn't accept us if they knew who we really are. We all think that. 
But we can't afford to let it be. Right? Because we know that it's part of us. It was interesting. If you saw the interview later in the week with Richard Sherman, I think it was Wednesday, he said, you know what? I'm just trying to be me. It's just who I am. I got to be me. Right? And that's true. And we all got to be me. I appreciate it. He wants to be an authentic person. But what do you do when part of the authentic you is this thingish thing? Right? And so I, I can't just let it be because uh, then you wouldn't accept me. See? You might try to accept, but you couldn't accept that in me, so you couldn't accept me. So we're kind of caught between this bind. I think what Jesus does, I want to suggest to you this morning, is invite us into a new space, and the name of that space is worship. So I want to talk about worship this morning. Remember, we're reviewing the five purposes of life-changing community. The first one is study the word. We spent two weeks on that. We saw that we can embody the word as one, uh, together, one another, and that we can teach the word together, one another, And today we come to the second of these five life-changing purposes, and it's worship the Lord. After we study the word, after we listen to who God says he is in Jesus Christ, we respond by worshiping. And, And that's the space in which we find acceptance. My point today is that worship opens you to acceptance. Let's look at this passage. It's one of the one another passages of the New Testament. If you brought a Bible, please open up to James chapter 5, verse 16. If you didn't, flip over to page 983. It's just one verse. James 5, 16. Gosh, you could memorize it this week. But if you're able, would you stand with me and let's read God's word aloud together. And when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen closely. You're reading his holy word. James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. See, you guys absorbed those first two weeks. You couldn't stop reading. You just wanted to keep going. I, I, I love that about you. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. There are two one another's in that verse, aren't there? Now, why? Why would anybody want to do that? It sounds so dangerous. And I want to suggest to you, it is dangerous. And the first thing I want to say to you is, here's why not. Let me begin by telling you why you don't confess to one another. You don't, James is not inviting you to confess to one another in order that you can find acceptance in your relationships. Because you know what? Some of us are enslaved to our relationships because we need acceptance and we're trying to find them in those relationships and they can't sustain the burden. When I was uh, fairly early in our married life, I recognized this thingish thing. You know what? Marriage is hard for me. I don't know. It's just, a, I'm not good at it. I have the greatest wife in the world. I truly do. She's really kind and gracious. So I know that when marriage is hard for us, it's the thingish thing in me. And sometimes I can be critical, and sometimes I can lose my patience, and sometimes I can be angry in ways that just are not justified by what's actually going on, the dynamics of the relationship. And it would come up, and I would see it, and Anne would see it, and you know, the kids would see it, and friends would see it, and I, I don't know what to do with that. And so one day, I, I went to somebody, and I, I, uh, I wanted to, I don't, I don't think I, I was thinking of it as confession, I, I don't 
think I was thinking, I was looking for advice. I just didn't want to sit alone with it. And this was a guy that I liked. He lived nearby and uh, he had a faith in Jesus that impressed me. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll just be transparent with him and tell him the struggle and just get it out. And you know what? It didn't go well. Um, it didn't come back to me in, in, in the form of acceptance. It came back to me in the form of rejection. He wasn't a safe person at that time in his life and he shared it with other people and, and other people came back and they were looking down their noses at me. And it kind of backfired. And I want to tell you, there are a lot of us in this room that have had that experience where you've taken the risk to be vulnerable with a friend or family member, even maybe somebody at church. Surprise, surprise. And, and you got judgment back, right? So the first thing that you want to know here is that confession to one another is not about getting acceptance from one another. That's not where you find it. Where you find acceptance, where you were made to find acceptance, is in Jesus Christ. Your creator accepts you. And, and the way that you experience that is in worship. That's what this is about. Now, I, I want to return you to the text, and I, I want you to see that this is also what James is arguing. Now, we just read one verse, verse 16, but let's always pay attention to the context. And if you have your Bible still open, uh, it might be useful for you to look at verses 13 through 14. It's a little section that's defined by three questions. And this is interesting. You know, we would read them and think about rhetorical questions. They must not. But actually, these questions invite the reader of James's epistle in, in, into two things. The first thing is into an imaginative worship space. Because these questions um, invite you as the reader to think about who would be asking these questions and to whom. And you know, the questions are things like, he says, are any among you suffering? So immediately, any among you, he's, he's, he's speaking to an audience. He's speaking presumably to a gathering, presumably to worshipers gathered in a house somewhere on the Lord's day. Are any among you suffering? Are any among you sick? Uh, are, are any of you uh, cheerful, he says there? And you could just picture as he throws out these questions, hands going up. Yeah, that's me. I'm, I'm really cheerful today. It's great things are happening in my life. Or, you know what? That's me. I'm really suffering. The word there is suffering, evil. I'm nose to nose with, with the worst evil I've ever known. I'm going to raise my hand there. So here's the idea is that this is uh, uh, inviting us into an imaginative worship space. So, so we know he's talking about worship. But... The second invitation in this is to authentic worship. Notice that he doesn't ask you to dress up your brokenness and bring it in your finest clothes so that nobody should know you're a real person. See what he says? I want you to bring the real thing, the real you, the raw data of your life. Are any among you facing evil? Are any among you just off the charts happy? By the way, the word cheerful there is just not about circumstances that you're facing. It's about an emotional reaction to your circumstances. We could say euphoria. Are any of you euphoric? Well, bring that into worship. Is he setting the markers on a range of the full range of human emotions that you can experience? Here I'm reminded of the Psalter. Talking with one of our family members this week, and, and we're saying, you know what? God invites us to be real with our emotion. You can be angry with God. You can be sad with God. You, you can be depressed with God. You can be joyful and celebratory with God. You can be defiant. Whatever it is, the, the, the book of Psalms is, is a book of 150 worship liturgy psalms that contain the full range of human emotion. And God says, I want you to bring it to me because in me you find acceptance, no matter who you are or what you're going through. Bring it to me. So yes, you can confess to God. 
God and God alone is capable of forgiving and wants to forgive. Let me show you one other thing here in this text before we move on. And that is something about the word confess. The word confess is a compound word in Greek meaning uh, to say the same as. To say the same as. Homo logeo. The same saying. To agree with. But you know for us it's kind of a negative word. Do you feel that? If someone were to say to you, confess. You go, what did I do wrong? And we might respond to James's invitation that way. Confess. Why? But you know, in, in the biblical narrative, the community that worships God and Jesus Christ sees that word very differently than you. In fact, it can be translated praise and thank in the Bible. Jesus thanks God, and, and, he, and the biblical writer uses the same word, confess. Why? Well, because the word developed in the ancient Near East in a courtroom context, and in the courtroom context, it meant to agree with the judge. If you confessed, you said the same thing that the judge was saying. You said, yeah, you're right. And that could be a bad thing if you're uh, the defendant. But as the Israelites started to use this word in their worship of, of God who redeemed them, then God's judgment isn't a judgment that condemns them. God's judgment is a judgment that releases them for forgiveness, that frees them. And so they started to use this word to describe a judgment to mean praise and thanksgiving to God. You got to get this. To confess Jesus is to agree with God that Jesus is the verdict on your life. Jesus is God's decision about who you are. Let me just show you this because you'll enjoy, I think, if you, or you can listen or, or flip to Psalm 107. If you're a Bible geek like me, you want to look at this. Psalm 107, there are two stanzas here that are really interesting where this word confess shows up when the Jewish scholars in the first three centuries before Christ translated the Hebrew into Greek, 70 scholars produced the Septuagint. They, they took this section and they used our word confess twice. So look at the first stanza. It starts in Psalm 107, verse 10. And here we see the audience to which the psalmist is speaking. Some sat in darkness and in gloom. Okay, that doesn't sound good. But some of us know what it's like to sit there. Uh, Prisoners in misery and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he's saying, this is who I'm talking to. Now, look at their reaction. At the end of the stanza, verse 15, it says, let them... Thank the Lord for his steadfast love. Now that word thank is our word confess. Let them agree with the gracious judgment of God. Let them thank. Let them say the same thing about their lives that God says about their lives in his steadfast love. Remember the the prisoners in misery and iron? Well, in verse 16, he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. So what happens when we confess to God? We're released from the prison. Verse 17, uh, he does it again. Second stanza here, you see, here's who he's addressing this to. Some were sick through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities endured affliction. They loathed any kind of food. They drew near to the gates of death. Doesn't sound good. But how do they react? Verse 21, look at the, the end of the stanza. Let them, again, thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to humankind. And let them offer thanksgiving sacrifices and tell of his deeds with songs of joy. Again, that word thank is the word confess. You see, this is a joyful word to confess, to say the truth about yourself. 
when it is God and Jesus Christ who has described that truth is to know you've been set free. You've been forgiven. Now in the embrace of Jesus Christ, it's not your brokenness that defines you. It's his love that defines you. And that's good news. So the reason we confess in worship is to find acceptance in God. God has not rejected us. God will never reject us. Karl Barth writes, God himself, by taking our place in Jesus Christ, has taken over the unconditional responsibility for our way. The way you've lived is our way. God has taken unconditional responsibility for the way I've lived and the way you've lived in Jesus Christ. He's made his decision. And and worship brings us out. That's why when Jesus comes across this Samaritan woman at the, at the well. Everybody else has abandoned her. She has been on this fruitless search for acceptance in relationship. Five men you've had, and the one with, with, that you have right now is not your husband. And Jesus says, let me offer you something else. What does he offer her? Worship. He says, I seek worshipers who worship me in spirit and truth. And that Greek word, truth, comes from the Greek word, the classical Greek word, which is a compound of not veiled. I seek women and men who come to me without a veil, who have the audacity to come to me without a mask. They know they don't need to hide. They can be authentically everything that they are in all of their greatness and all of their brokenness because I forgive and I accept without condition. That's worship. So the first thing we see here, James is, is, is saying you know, that you come to Jesus to find acceptance. Worship opens you to acceptance. That's my point, remember. But why then would he ask them to confess to one another? There's another invitation here, not just to come to Jesus with our confession, but to confess to one another. And so the question is, why would we do that? given that it's so risky and given that we know it will not ensure our acceptance in any meaningful way. Well, let me suggest to you that while a friend can never be our source of acceptance, friends who, offer, who worship offer a healing context for acceptance. And when you confess your sins to another person, you create a context for them that wouldn't exist otherwise. I need to say that again because you don't think of it that way. You think when you confess to someone, you're doing something for yourself. I'm, I'm suggesting when you confess your sin, you're doing something for somebody else. You are opening them up to the possibility that they could receive forgiveness in Jesus Christ as well. Why? Why? Well, just think of the power. If I say to you, if I tell you some sin that I'm struggling with it's, and I don't know what to do with it, What have I just done? I have honored you. I have given you a gift that is probably the most valuable gift I've given because I've I've exposed myself to you. I said, this is who I am in all of my pain and hurt and woundedness and rebellion. And you could do whatever you want with that. At that point, right, you could stomp all over that. You could kick me to the curb. You own me at that moment because I took a real risk with you. What does it do for you? Well, if, if you choose to receive it, it's the gift of allowing you to let down your guard, to take off your veil, and to say, you know what? This is who I am too. 
And in that place, my confession to you has invited your confession to me. And we have created a context in which we can be real. A context in which now we can bring our pain to Jesus Christ and get his acceptance. That's why James says this will result in healing. I mean, we could guess why he asked us to confess, but the text tells us. If, you look, if you're looking back at verse 16, he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Why? So that you may be healed. Confession is a healing context. Now, I don't know why we get this wrong in the church. People think of the church, they think of people who are judgmental. People who are anything but safe. And I don't know why that is. Maybe this explains why the church is so irrelevant in society today. We just got it backwards. Have you ever noticed that the Apostles' Creed doesn't put the section on forgiveness in in, in the section with Jesus? The three parts of the Apostles' Creed, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I would think that the forgiveness part goes with the stuff on Jesus. But you know what? It's not. It's in the stuff on the Holy Spirit and the church. Because even though forgiveness comes from Jesus, forgiveness is a ministry of the church. It's a mark of the church. We are a group of people who gather around nothing but the good news of God's availability for sinners in Jesus Christ. That's what we have in common. We're sinners. And we found that Jesus Christ is is the only and all-sufficient thing for our sin. And so I don't know why we try to convince the world that our, the mark of who we are as a church is our power or our virtue or our wealth or our great programs or beautiful good looks or whatever. Look at our bodies. We're the beautiful people of the world. Um, can you, I, I spent some time in L.A. But uh, <laughs> you know what? We're called to look like the body of Christ. And ask yourself, you know, from what you know about Jesus, what did his body look like? Jesus came taking on the likeness of sinful flesh. Romans 8, 3. Jesus looked like a sinner. He wasn't, but he looked like one. Jesus began his ministry being baptized with a bunch of people who were, who were being called to repentance because they were sinners. And Jesus says, get me in that water. He identifies with the sinner. He eats with the sinners. He ends his ministry uh, being numbered among the transgressors. On the cross. So if you ask, how does God reveal himself into the world? It's it's through this. It's it's through the transparent identification with the sinner. And if you want to be relevant as a follower of Jesus Christ, if we as a church want to be relevant to Seattle, we gotta start looking the way that Jesus looked. We gotta be safe. We gotta be honest. I read this uh, cartoon. Let me see if we have it. Do we have this cartoon? I came across this the other day. Um, it's a man and a woman. He's obviously trying to impress her. It's some kind of a dating situation. He's, he's uh, doing everything he can. You may not be able to read the caption. He says, look, I can't promise I'll change, but I can promise I'll pretend to change. That's funny, isn't it? But is that not the Christian world? Uh, you know, I, I, our hiding from one another is killing us. Literally, it is killing us. Our inauthenticity, our hiding from one another, our veils and our masks. Nicholas Kristof, at the beginning of the year, wrote a column for the New York Times in which he made a New Year's resolution to write more about mental illness. Listen to this. One quarter of American adults suffer from a diagnosable mental disorder. One out of four of us. 
here today. He says, including depression, anorexia, post-traumatic stress disorder, and more, according to the National Institutes of Health, such disorders are the leading cause of disability in the United States and Canada. A parent with depression, a lover who's bipolar, a child with an eating disorder, a brother who returned from war with PTSD, a sister who is suicidal. All across America and the world, families struggle with these issues, but people are more likely to cry quietly in bed than speak out. These mental health issues pose a greater risk to our well-being than, say, the Afghan Taliban or Al-Qaeda terrorists. Yet in polite society, and I would add in the church, there is still something of a code of silence around these topics. Nicholas Kristof. But it's not just our mental health, it's, it's all of our health. Dean Ornish at UCSF writes, I'm not aware of any other factor, not diet, not smoking, not exercise, not stress, not genetics, not drugs, not surgery, that has a greater impact on our incidence of illness and chance of premature death. He says, depending on which research you consult, people with good friends, people where intimacy is is not just possible but real, have a 22 to 60% lower chance of dying over a 10-year period. You want to live another 10 years? You need some friends with whom you can be real. Salon Magazine did a thing, and let me just speak to you guys for, for, for a moment, because... Recently, Salon reported that research is showing that men, when they are asked what they most want in a relationship, say exactly the same thing that women say. You know what it is? Get ready, guys. Intimacy. Admit it, because it's true. And when men are asked what makes their relationships satisfying, they answer the same way that women answer. It's correlated to the level of self-disclosure that the relationship affords them. And so the writer of Salon says, to be close friends, men need to be willing to confess their insecurities. Confess your sins to one another. This creates a context where healing can actually happen. I don't know any better model of this than Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and I've had the privilege of sitting in AA for about a year in Boston. I went to an AA meeting, and I I just wanted to soak in everything that that was. And I wish, I wish, I wish the church were more like AA. Because think about what it is that brings people together in AA. It's this absolute omission that life has gotten out of control, and they can't handle it anymore. They're alcoholics. And you know what it's like. You go in there and you say, hi, my name is George. I'm an alcoholic. And everybody else says, which means welcome to the community. Welcome to the, you're now, you're qualified to be one of us because we're all alcoholics and none of us knows what to do with it except bring it to our higher power. And you know, that's what the church ought to be in Jesus Christ. You, you can do it on your own if you want. You can try. You can try to manage that marriage, your, your sex life, your anger, your bitterness, your finances. But one day you're going to get to the point where you're realizing, hey, trying to manage this myself is killing me. I need to acknowledge before somebody else the pain of this and bring it to Jesus. Will you help me do that? I need to admit to you I can't do it. Will you walk with me through this? This is, what Jesus, this is what James is envisioning, a community that would do this. That out of its worship, out of its experience of acceptance in Jesus Christ, would now have the security needed to take the risk and confess their sins to one another so that the other finds space to acknowledge their brokenness as well. 
Four implications real quick as I let you go here. Four things you gotta do. First of all, you have to worship Jesus. I've already said that. That's the context of the whole thing. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know that God has accepted you. You gotta know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know the gift of the body of Christ that you've been grafted into. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know the power of the Holy Spirit at work in and through you. So you have to first worship Jesus. The second thing you have to do is have community. And I'm sorry to have to repeat this, but this is something you cannot do alone. This is one of the one another passages. You can't just confess your sin to someone. Very dangerous. I don't advise that. Confess your sin to one another is very different. That says I'm part of a community. You can't do it with an iPod. You can't do it with your Bible. You can't do it in the darkness of, of a confessional, by the way, where you're anonymously speaking to some religious authority. This is about the body life of the people of God. Confess to one another. It's always mutual. It's an action that always cuts both ways when that pronoun one another shows up. So you've got to find these people, and they have to find you, and they have to know you're one of them. The third implication of this is you have to be vulnerable. You have to open up. You have to be secure enough in, in the acceptance Jesus gives you that you can take the risk with other people because they might stomp on you or kick you to the curb. And it's only okay if you're already secure in Jesus' love. One of you mentioned your small group to me a couple weeks ago and you said, hey, we got the greatest small group. It's just gotten very intimate very quickly. It's just like we've turned a corner and we can be really vulnerable with one another. And I said, how did that happen? I'm very interested in this. I ask this of groups all the time. How did you turn that corner and he said well we have this great leader interesting thing is she's kind of had it all together and we thought this is a woman you know she knows the bible really well she's a really charming smart person and we've been in the group with her for a while one day she just broke down she broke down her defenses she took the veil off with us and she said i gotta tell you i have been struggling with anxiety in fact i've been having panic attacks and it's been going on for so long i just have to tell you because i don't know what to do about it i'm beginning to feel like i'm losing hope in a church whose mission is to share hope, it takes courage to say, I don't think I have hope. My spirit's broken. Would you pray for me? Wow. And he said, well, you know what has happened, George? Over a period of weeks, we've come around that woman, and she actually has been healed. She's no longer having panic attacks. But more importantly, she has created a context in that group where now it's safe for other people to share their burdens with one another. It's a healing community. What a gift. Where else do you find that? You know, the world is dying for people who are as broken as they are and who are willing to share with them what to do with that brokenness, to bring it to Jesus. You have to worship Jesus, you have to have community, you have to be vulnerable. Finally, you have to be safe. You have to be a safe person. You know, people can smell judgmentalism from a mile away. I don't even have to, get, I don't even have to see you to know you're going to judge me if I take a risk with you. So we have to work on this. What does it mean for us to be safe as people, safe as a church, safe in a small group, safe in the family, for every member of the family? It's not an easy thing. But there's no benefit unless it's safe because there's no benefit unless I can confess. I like what uh, Bruce Larson said, former pastor here. He said, it doesn't do any good to know someone's secrets unless he tells them to you. That's why we confess to God. He doesn't need the information. He already knows your sins. But the forgiveness and healing can't start until we say, here's my problem. It doesn't work for me to say to you, I know what your problem is. That just destroys the relationship. You have to come out with it first, and then I can minister to you. Do you see how important that is? So you got to be safe so people feel it's, it's okay for them to be who they are in your presence. 
Well, let me just review and tell you what I've told you. Worship opens you to acceptance. Jesus heals what we unhide to him and with one another. Winnie the Pooh said, a thing which seems very thingish when it's on the inside looks different when other people are looking at it. And it's true, and it can look like shame and guilt and like I'm not okay when it's the world that's looking at it. But when we take that thingish thing out and we bring it out before Jesus Christ and his cross and in the community of his worshipers, it can look really wonderful, like pure grace, like we've completely been forgiven. I think this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer is saying, although he doesn't use words that are as interesting as Winnie the Pooh, and I want to close with a quote from him in Life Together. Bonhoeffer writes, the expressed, acknowledged sin, once we have confessed, has lost all its power. It has been revealed and judged as sin, but now the fellowship bears the sin of the brother. He's no longer alone with his evil, for he has cast off his sin in confession and handed it over to God. It's been taken away from him. Now he, or she, stands in the fellowship of sinners who live by the grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. Now he, or she, can be a sinner and still enjoy the grace of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we're not here today to identify with the Pharisees. We're here today to identify with the sinner who doesn't even dare lift his eyes to heaven for fear of judgment, but who hears the good news of our Savior saying, today you go home justified. Thank you for giving us that gift. We worship you. Help us through the power of your Holy Spirit to know how to offer that gift to the people around us. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.